Today, we're going to be looking at 1 Peter. Last week, we started a new study, and we're in chapter 1 still. We're going to be looking at verses 8 through 12. And I want you to know, I was listening to a podcast uh, over the weekend. I just got introduced to podcasts. So I've always heard about what they are. But somebody actually showed me on my iPhone how to go to podcasts. And so it was like a kid on Christmas. I mean, so many different theological podcasts that I could participate in. And I was just, I was so happy this weekend. And I listened to probably eight hours on church history while I was mowing my lawn. And, uh, and I, it was fascinating because they were talking about the, the church in America the progression of the church, or talking about the history of the church, and something happened after World War II, and this pastor from the West Coast got this idea to, instead of focusing on the parts of the Bible that nobody likes, you know, that makes people uncomfortable, he decided he was just going to focus on the parts of the Bible that would draw people in. He got this idea, I want to get people into the church, I want to fill the seats, and so I'm going to do something a little different. I'm going to stop talking about certain topics that make people uncomfortable. So he didn't really talk a whole lot about suffering. He never really talked about sin. He only talked about the blessing and the love and the grace and the mercy. And those are all in the Bible. They're there. But he, he, he only focused on those aspects and he never touched on, on suffering or, 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 or uh, sin or any of those topics that might make somebody uncomfortable. Now his church exploded. It grew. And not only did it explode and he, it, it grow to be this huge mega church, he started influencing other pastors to do the same thing. And so over the course of the last 25, well, I'd say even 30, 30 to 40 years, we saw something uh, emerge, and it was this uh, seeker-sensitive church. Let's only preach messages that people want to hear, right? That's going to bring people in. Let's only focus on the parts that are going to get people excited. And now... And this is just my opinion, but now what we're experiencing is we are suffering the consequences of that. We are. We have a very malnutrition church in, in America. We have, we have people who attend church that don't really know the, the, the word or the scripture. And so you're getting all kinds of teachings that are, are contradictory to God's word. And one of those teachings is that Christians don't suffer. We're going to live the good life, Right? And I, I, I'll be honest, I, I've been tempted before as a minister, sometimes when you give an altar call and there's just nobody raising their hand, yeah, maybe there's the temptation. I've got to paint it in a really good light so they come. But how, man, God help me if I ever do that, right? We've done so many things to fill the seats. And, and here's what's crazy. When you look at God's word and you look at the history of the church, we, we grow the most and we're the strongest when we are committed to his word. One of our core doctrines here at New Heights Church is we're committed to doctrine. That's good teaching. We do verse by verse preaching. And that means we go over some topics that are really uncomfortable for people. Man, in my first uh, few months at, in Cincinnati at this church, I preached through the book of Ephesians and right off the bat we had to address uh, gender issues, gender roles, uh, sexuality. We had to touch up touch on all kinds of topics that made people maybe a little uncomfortable. But here's my, my promise to you. If you want to make New Heights your church, we're going to be committed to God's word. That's what we're going to do here. 
And so I'm not afraid to preach 1 Peter. I love 1 Peter. This is my favorite book in all of the Bible. If you were here last week, I told you it was so instrumental in my faith. When I experienced a, a trial and when I was going through a difficult time in high school, I was so excited that my youth pastor, someone who poured into me, not introduced me to 1 Peter because I knew it, but helped me understand 1 Peter. Man, what a difference it made in my life. This book, I have an emotional attachment to this book. I will always love the book of 1 Peter. And today I want to start out with just one statement that I want you to think about, I want you to chew on it all throughout our teaching today, and that's this, that the end is eternity. Remember that the end is eternity. God is working on you. He's working on me. He's molding us until eternity. That's the end, eternity. The end isn't the end of a crisis. It's not the end of a bad situation or, or when things go our way. The end is eternity. So what we're doing here, what Peter's doing, is we're learning that there's this ongoing process that God is working out in our lives through the trials that come our way. He's writing to a group of people who are going through great trials. And here's what's crazy. They're about to go through even more great trials. They were going through trials, which inspired Peter by the Holy Spirit to write this. But they were about to go through one of the most fiery trials ever. And Peter's wanting to encourage them. Because trials, they grieve us. They hurt us and they confuse us. I've actually heard a pastor describe trials this way. It's like being punched in the gut. And you lose your breath and all that's left is, I have to get my next breath. And you don't think about anything else or care about anything else. You just want your next breath. Can you relate to that? Have you ever been in a situation where you feel like that? That's what trials do. But Peter's telling you trials have a purpose. In fact, they're working deep inside of us. They're working into our souls. They're developing character and trust. Last week we looked at verse 7 and there's this phrase, the genuineness of your faith. There's a preposition there, of your faith. What the emphasis there is that God is bringing out a genuineness so that you know your faith is real. You can know that your faith is real. It's authentic. We all like things that are real, don't we? We like something genuine. We don't like fake things. I mean, how many of you guys are country fans? Two of you. <laughs> how many of you guys like the Zac Brown band? Yeah, I'll, I'll listen to Zach Brown when I'm swimming, or now I'm going to listen to him when I'm driving my tractor. <laughs> There's a song that he sings, and the chorus says, I thought I'd been in love a time or two, didn't know what I lost till I met you, and I could tell that every other girl was history. Never knew how real could feel till you found me. All it took was one kiss, and you blew my mind, an all-American kind of fine. You know, a good woman is hard to find. Ain't nothing like the real thing. Okay, two of you have heard that song. <laughs> we like something real. Zach Brown got it right. We like the real thing. We don't like fake. Liz always would tell this story. She grew up in El Salvador as a missionary kid, and she had a friend, and her aunt went and bought a Dalmatian because they really wanted a Dalmatian dog. They liked the look of these dogs, and so they kept begging and begging uh, for the aunt to buy this. The aunt goes out, buys a Dalmatian puppy on the side of the street. Beautiful, adorable little puppy. They take it home, and what's the first thing they want to do? Give this little puppy a bath, and so they do that. And you know what happens as they're scrubbing the puppy with soap? The spots disappear. 
They couldn't go back because those people were nowhere to be found. Surprise, surprise. So they didn't have a Dalmatian, but they had a cute dog. I remember when we were missionaries to Thailand, we decided to buy the kids a dog, and we thought we were buying a little Shih Tzu puppy, and I'll, I'll admit it looked weird, <laughs> but it was a good price, okay? So we bought it when it was real little, and you couldn't, I mean, it just looked like something that was just born. That's how they do it in Thailand. They, they won't wait uh, very long. They'll just sell it to you. You have to take care of it. Man, after about two months, Liz and I were pretty convinced we didn't even buy a dog. <laughs> I was pretty sure this thing was a rat. It wouldn't bark, it would just hiss. I said, Liz, I don't know what that is, but the kids think it's a dog, it's good. <laughs> we like to know that something's real and not fake. There are things that are very valuable that when we look at it, we want to make sure it isn't fake. You know, when we're about to spend a lot of money or invest a lot of time into something, we don't want it to be fake. I don't want to get involved in something fake. I don't want to get involved in something that could be a scam. Who wants anything fake? And Peter's telling you, you can know that your faith is real. You can know the genuineness of your faith. So listen, whenever trials are coming your way, you can know that God is developing genuineness in you. And that's pretty encouraging. I mean, what, what Peter is saying here is that we can actually embrace trials. <laughs> I know. I know. What Peter is saying here is that we can actually embrace trials. We can actually embrace difficult times in our life. And most, most of the time, we'll do anything to avoid a trial or, or a difficult time, won't we? It's part of being human. We want absolutely nothing to do with them. But here, Peter, here, Scripture is teaching us that God actually uses trials in our life to purify us and to develop us. I'm not telling you to go put on a fake smile, push on through, because that's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to look strong. I'm not telling you to do that. In fact, Jeremiah the prophet said this, why is my pain unending and my wound grievous and incurable? It's Jeremiah the prophet. He knew God pretty well. What about Solomon? He said there's a time to laugh and there's a time to weep, mourn, and grieve. Did you know in ancient times, the Hebrews, when they would lose somebody in their family or they, they would lose someone that they loved, somebody that was dear to them, they would have a public period of grief and it lasted 30 days. 30 days. Society expected somebody for a month to show emotional grief. They gave you this month where you can just grieve. In fact, the Egyptians did it for 70 days. At the very end of your life, when you see Jesus, your life through the trials of of your experience here on this earth are going to make you much more refined. You need to listen to me. This is, this is something that you need to hear. If you take anything home, take this home. God's not out to burn you. I hear it a lot as a pastor because everybody goes through some level of, of a trial. And here's, here's the other thing, too. Sometimes as Christians, we like to evaluate our trials and our, our times of difficulty based on uh, our own experiences, you know, we'll hear a trial that somebody else is going through and we'll go, please, walk in the park. You know, hurt is hurt. So I, I want you to understand, no matter where you're at in life, no matter what trial you're going through, God wants to use it and he wants to purify you through this, that experience. 
Every single one of us go through difficult times at some point in our life. And I, as a pastor, have sat so many times in an office where somebody is so angry and mad at God. And I'm, I'm telling you, and only the Holy Spirit can do this, but this is my prayer, that you would approach the text today and come to the realization that God is not out to burn you. I know that some of you are going through difficult times, and I'm going to tell you again, God is not out to burn you. He's out to bless you. He's out to bless you. But sometimes those blessings, they come disguised as trials. And some of you are thinking, they're... <laughs> I don't care what Pastor Justin has to say. I don't want it. I don't want anything to do with trials. I don't want anything to do with difficulties. I'm not taking that. And I'm telling you, well, I'm not telling you. Peter's telling you. Well, Peter's not telling you. God's telling you. Take it. Take it. Do you remember God? Do you remember Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? He said, Lord, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. What did Jesus do? He took the cup. He drank it. He took a cup of suffering and he drank it. He took it. Listen, people, I don't know what you're going through in your life, but I'm encouraging you take that cup. The Bible does say that one day we will look at all that he has done and we will say this, that it is good. That it is good. Let's pray. Father, I pray today, I pray and I ask that you will speak to us through your word. These are old and tested principles of truth, but Lord, they are going to be new and revolutionary to some some who are here today. So God, I pray that in hearing them, we would not only be like the prophet who said, speak, Lord, your servant hears, but we would have the desire to put into practice those principles that are revealed in your word. And only that can be done by your grace, and we ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The Christian philosophy of life is not that everything will be easy. I hate to disappoint you today. (laughs) And Peter gives, in this text that we're looking at today, four directions for enjoying the glory right now, even in the midst of trials. Peter is going to take us from grit to glory. It's an epic text that's in front of us today. So let's dive in. First direction Peter gives is to love Christ. To love Christ, he says. We find this in verse 8. In fact, look with me at verse 8, if, if you will. Starting in verse 8, it says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Now, you have that prayer journal. That's for all of those who don't like to mark up their Bible. Take your pen or your highlighter and uh, highlight love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. Highlight believe in him. And... Rejoice, highlight that. Rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Isn't that something? Our love for Jesus isn't based on sight because we haven't seen him. But the guy who wrote this letter, Peter, he did see him. Here's what you need to grab today. Peter's writing to a group of second-generation believers in Asia Minor who have never seen Jesus Christ or heard Christ in person, and yet they are very aware that the guy who's writing this letter lived with Jesus. In fact, Peter ate with Jesus. He went fishing with him. He literally lived and he slept alongside the guy for the better part of three years. And yet here Peter's saying, and listen, guys, here's what Peter's saying. You're far beyond where I was 
Because I saw and couldn't sustain my love. I saw Jesus and couldn't sustain my love. I saw Jesus and couldn't sustain my faith. But you guys, you're nailing it. Crazy important principle here that most people miss. And, and you see it all throughout the New Testament. It's all throughout the New Testament. It's so much throughout the New Testament. We're an Assemblies of God church here, New Heights Church. And we have 16 fundamental truths. And I, ever since I've graduated from Central Bible College, have been petitioning that the Assemblies of God has 17 fundamental truths. And one of those needs to be suffering. No amens. <laughs> And we see suffering all throughout the Bible, all throughout the New Testament. And sometimes we miss it. Sometimes we impose our own feelings and thoughts on a text. And, and so what I'm asking you today is, to the best of your ability and with the help of the Holy Spirit, put aside your own thoughts and your own feelings and approach the text and let the Holy Spirit speak to you and be your guide today. Because I'm telling you, you're going to do well to be encouraged by this truth. And here it is. Are you ready? We walk by faith, not sight. We walk by faith, not sight. Now, I know a lot of you know this. It's become quite a popular bumper sticker. Okay? I came from Missouri before I came here. Missouri has like a Christian bookstore on every corner. Cincinnati needs some more Christian bookstores. But every Christian bookstore that I would go to, there was the bumper sticker section, and this was the most popular by far. I mean, you could, this was, I guess a lot of people liked it, that and the fish. And then the fish eating Darwin. Oh boy. Anyway, we walk by faith, not sight. Peter is saying, look, I've walked by sight and it didn't work out well for me. You guys, you haven't seen Christ, you don't, you don't see him, and you're walking by faith, and you're rejoicing with an, a joy that is inexpressible. Now think about this. Which of the apostles, besides Judas, struggled the most with faith and love? And this is not a trick question, I promise. <laughs> Peter, right? Peter was the guy who the Lord said, Oh, you of little faith, why do you doubt? That was Peter. Jesus was saying that to Peter. It was Peter who Jesus had to ask three times, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you know why he had to say that to Peter? Three times, one for each of his failures. His restoration paralleled his failure. Peter was walking by sight. And when did Peter start walking by faith? When was it? Acts chapter 2, right? He stands up, he preaches a Holy Spirit-anointed message, and 3,000 people in the church, or join the church. 3,000 people. And that was just the beginning of Peter's ministry. And where, where was Jesus when Peter preached this? He had ascended. He was in heaven, right? He was gone. Peter wasn't walking by sight anymore. He was walking by faith. Now, it's normal to fall in love with somebody. I'm talking to young people here. By sight. I remember where I was the first time I ever saw... Well, I, I gotta tell this story right. I had seen and heard about Liz my whole life because she was a missionary kid and I was a missionary kid and she was two years younger so you know I knew who little Lizzie was I knew who she was she was the same age as my little sister but I remember where I was where I stood at that Bible college the first time I saw her and I said wow she got up at a chapel and she prayed uh, for a mission service and I remember telling the guy next to me that's my wife I'm going to marry her 
And he just laughed at me and said, that's a triplet, good luck. <laughs> Not that she's a triplet, like she got two sisters that look just like her. That was her maiden name. And if you're new to the Assemblies of God, triplet was a big name. So, you know, he said, good luck. And I, I, I remember where I was when I finally got enough guts to, to go talk to her. Junior, senior banquet. I wasn't even there with Liz. But Liz wore a red dress. I still remember it like it was yesterday. And I just said, man, I got to go talk to her. And I did. And I went and asked her out. And she said no. And I had to convince her for the next three years to go with me. <laughs> but it pays, or, or, or sticking to it, guys, it pays off. She either fell in love or she just got tired of saying no. Either way, I am a blessed man. Amen? Peter's saying, you love someone you don't see, and you're growing in love with that someone you don't see. That's really what Peter's saying here. Peter was careful in how he wrote this. It's, it's in the present active indicative. It's, it's this ongoing love. I told you, Liz and I began dating after college. I, I couldn't convince her to date me while I was at college. I convinced her to date me while I was away. See, when I graduated, I went up to New York and pastored a church. Liz stayed back in Springfield, and she, she continued her studies at CBC, and we, we dated through correspondence. We did the long-distance thing. This was before iPhones. I'm not that old, but... This was before iPhones where you could do the FaceTime. It was, it was emails, and I lived in an area in New York where I had terrible coverage, so I couldn't even make a phone call to her. Um, and so most of it was done through emails, and then I would have to drive about 20 miles away from where I lived just to get coverage, and I could make a phone call. But it was through those phone calls and through those emails I really got to know Liz. I mean, we would talk for hours about our convictions, our dreams for life and ministry, our passions and our desires, and I really got to know who Liz was. I really started to fall in love with Liz. Some of you are thinking, well, you can't love her because you weren't there with her. You couldn't see her. How could you love her? Oh, that's not true. I loved her. And that's my point, my point here. It's like Pastor Skip, when preaching on, Pastor Skip Heidzik, when teaching on this, he says, invisible doesn't mean unlovable. Invisible doesn't mean unlovable. My love for Liz was growing, and in fact, it was becoming stronger and stronger. I, I, I didn't get to see her, but that didn't stop me from loving her. The more I got to know her, the more I fell in love with her. Our love for Jesus is not based on physical sight. I've never seen Jesus Christ, but I, I stand before you today and tell you I love Jesus Christ. I love him. And my love, it's based on a relationship with him, and it's based on what his word tells me about him. How about that? Man, I'm telling you, when I was falling in love with Liz, I couldn't wait to get on the phone and talk to her. I couldn't wait to hear her tell me more about her, her dreams and passions and desires. If you really love God, you're going to love his word. You get to know God more intimately through his word. How many of you love God's word? Romans 5.5 5 tells us that the Holy Spirit has poured out God's love into our hearts. And we return that love to him. So listen, when you find yourself in a nasty situation, you're experiencing grief and pain, I want to ask you, do you lift your heart to Christ in love and worship? <laughs> That's a tough question. When you are in the midst of a difficult time, do you lift your head and your heart to Christ in love and worship? There was a time in my life when I would go through trials that I could have answered that question with a big old no way. 
I would do anything but go to Christ. I would call my friends for comfort, call family for comfort. I was always comforted by my dad growing up, and then when I was 13 years old, I pretty much lost my father to a brain tumor, and I didn't know where to go to. I should have been going to God in all those difficult times. Do you, do you turn to God in difficult times? But I'm not just saying, do you turn to him and ask him to change your situation? Do you turn to God in love and worship? We should, and here's why. Because genuine love and worship, it takes the poison out of the experience and replaces it with healing. Don't you want that? Don't you want God's healing? Satan wants to use life's trials to bring out the worst in us, but God wants to bring out the best in us. That's the truth. If we love ourselves more than Jesus, then we will not experience any other glory right now. You want to experience glory, you got to love Jesus more than you love yourself. The fire that Peter talks about in verse 7, it's going to burn us and not purify us if you don't love Jesus more than yourself. Peter doesn't just say love, though. He uses another word, believe or trust, right? Which leads me to the second direction Peter gives. The second direction is this, trust Christ. You got to trust in Jesus. You got to put your faith in Jesus. You believe in him. I once read that a lady went to a summer Bible conference and while, while she was there, she tripped and fell. She wound up breaking her leg and, and when the pastor came to visit her, she said, I know the Lord led me to this conference, but I don't see why this had to happen and I don't see any good coming from it. The pastor replied, well, Romans 8.28 doesn't say that we see all the things working together for good. It says that we know it. We know it. Faith means surrendering all to God and obeying his word in spite of circumstances and consequences. I love the story of Thomas. You guys know Doubting Thomas. I preached on him two Easter's ago. Doubting Thomas is, is one of my favorites because, uh, well, we just see the human part of Thomas so much, but after the disciples had experienced the resurrected Christ, they're trying to tell Thomas about it, and Thomas is saying, no way. <laughs> Whatever. You guys had too many tacos last night, and they were bad. He did not believe that Christ resurrected, and, and he was saying, not till I see it will I believe it. Man, not till I see it will I believe it. And in the midst of this, Jesus appears, the resurrected Jesus, and he's saying, Thomas, it's me. Look, you can, you can see, you can touch. This is me. And what, is, what does Thomas say? He responds by saying, my Lord and my God. But then do you remember what Jesus said to Thomas after that? He said, blessed are you who, who, that you believe now, but blessed are those who believe and will never see. Blessed are those who believe but will never see. That's you, that's me. That was a promise, a blessing that Jesus was saying over our lives today. He's essentially telling these guys, you guys are blessed, but he's saying, let me tell you who's going to be even more blessed than you, those who have not seen like you have, and yet they believe. I mean, he's referring to the very people Peter is writing to here and to every single person in this room this morning who have decided to walk by faith and not by sight. Do you know how many times that I've heard, I'm telling you all the things I hear as a pastor, do you know how many times I hear if I could have just been there to see Jesus like the apostles? 
If I could have just seen his miracles, if I could have just witnessed some of the things he, he's done, if I could have just seen Jesus pull a rabbit out of a hat, my life would be so different. Well, let me tell you, it may come as a surprise to some of you, you're actually better off for not having been there. If I could have just witnessed the miracles of Jesus, well, guess what? It didn't work out for Peter. He saw a bunch of miracles. And yet in the temple courts, when Jesus is about to go to trial, what's Peter doing? He's cussing out a little girl and letting the entire crowd know, I do not know him. And before we all throw Peter under the bus, he wasn't the only one who it didn't really work out for t that well either, right? Think about Peter's forefathers. Think of Israel, who by the name, uh, or by the way, the, the name means struggles with God. <laughs> These people saw the sea split. They saw the sea split in two. They walked through a split sea. They were being led by a pillar of fire and a pillar of smoke. They were walking by sight every single day. They saw amazing and stunning miracles that they witnessed. And yet not long after all of these miracles, what did they say to, to God? Oh, they would have just left us to die in Egypt. We would have died there, but at least we would have died with full bellies. This is, this is a real story. Go read it in, in Exodus. People who saw and witnessed miracles. People who got to walk by sight every single day. And what is, the, what is the Lord? How does he respond? Well, he's patient and long-suffering. In his mercy, he brings them manna, right? Then after God miraculously provides manna, they get sick and tired of the manna. At every turn, they're walking by sight, and yet they are grumbling. Listen to me. We don't understand how privileged we are today. So many people in Jesus' lifetime saw him physically and yet never really saw him. We see him so much better and far more clearly than they ever did. Keep listening. They got a glimpse here and there, but just in the four Gospels, just in the four Gospels alone, we have this complimentary portraits of Jesus Christ inspired by God and covering the full range and the scope of his teaching, his ministry, and his life. We are far better off not having been there. You get that? But just in the Gospels, we're taken into the very inner circle of the apostles where we could have never gone. We can go with Christ through the trials, through the resurrection, through the meetings, after the resurrection. We see the whole range of God's character and power like none of them could have seen. We see it all. And here's what I hope, hope you get today and, and appreciate, that you and I are living in Acts chapter 29. By the way, there's, there's 28 chapters in the book of Acts, okay? We are living in Acts chapter 29. That should excite you. It excites me. It gets me excited. I know we're living in difficult times. I know the world is crazy. I hear crazy stories every day, but my God is bigger. And we're living in Acts chapter 29. Guess what? God wins in the end. He wins in the end, and we get to be a part of it. You got to understand this. So many of us today take this for granted, this dispensation in which we live in. So many of God's children, they, they longed to see and to hold what you and I have today in the Bible. And so many of us are grumbling. So many of us are 
whiny children settling for the scraps of this world when the glorious buffet of the word of God is spread out before us without obstacle or barrier. It's free for the taking. We have all we need with the Bible to greatly rejoice. And do you know why we're not? Because we de- we're deceived and we're in love with the scraps instead of the buffet. How can we grow in faith during difficult times of testing and suffering? The same way we grow in faith when things are going well, by feeding on the word of God. That's how we're going to grow in our difficult times. Romans 10, 17 says this. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Our relationship with Jesus, our fellowship with him through his word, not only gives us the strength we need for our faith, but it also deepens our love. It's a basic principle of Christian living. We spend much time in God's word when God is testing us and when Satan is tempting us. Okay? The word brings us back to reality. When we face trials and pain, it brings us back to the truth. How many of you guys know the name Horatio Spafford? Anybody? How many of you guys know the old hymn, It Is Well With My Soul? Oh, yeah, a lot of you guys know that. Well, Horatio wrote it. And Horatio, he invested in real estate north of Chicago in the spring of 1871, and he was doing pretty well. But then in October in 1871, the great fire of Chicago hit, and it reduced the city to ashes. That fire destroyed most of his investment. If that's not bad enough, I mean, that's something to to be pretty grieved about, right? Two years after that devastation, the family planned a trip to Europe, and because of his work, he wasn't able to join his wife and his four daughters on the trip. He was going to meet up with them later. But they, his wife and his four daughters, got onto that boat, and on November 22nd, 1873, while crossing the Atlantic on a steamship, the ship was struck by an iron sailing vessel, killing 226 people, including, listen, including all four of his daughters. He lost Annie, who was 12 years old. He lost Maggie, who was 7 years old. He lost Bessie, who was 4 years old. And he lost his 18-month-old baby. His wife, Anna, survived the tragedy, and when she got into England, she sent a telegram to her husband, and it read this, saved alone. She lived. He lost all four of his daughters. He's the one who wrote, it is well with my soul. In fact, he said, O Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight. The clouds shall be rolled back as a scroll, the trump shall resound, and the love and the Lord will descend, even so it is well with my soul. That's faith. That's trust. Can you say that today? The third direction that Peter gives, also found in verse 8, is to rejoice in Christ. Because that's where love and trust take you, to a joy that you cannot even describe. Sounds good, doesn't it? You may not be able to rejoice over the circumstances, but you can rejoice in them by centering your heart and your mind on Jesus Christ. And that's a discipline. That's a habit you've got to to bring into your life. It's not something that happens naturally. You've got to discipline yourself to do that. You've got to mentally focus on Jesus in those difficult times. Have you discovered in reading through the Bible that joy is one of the greatest themes of God's word? 
it's one of the greatest themes. In all the stories, there's this theme of joy. Most of God's people throughout all the time, they're just like we are. They're just like the recipients of this letter that Peter was writing. They're going through real life. They're going through difficult times. And most of them in the New Testament have never seen Jesus, just like we haven't. In fact, only three to three and a half years did people see God in human flesh. Only three and a half years did people walk, walk with Jesus, get to know Jesus, and we know who they are. We know who Peter is. We know who James is. We know who John is. We know who the disciples are. But for most of the part, all throughout history, God's people have never seen him. But they've loved him. And they've trusted him. And there's this incredible story of joy throughout all of God's redemptive history. And I'm telling you, I've lived overseas. I have worked with persecuted people groups. And I am amazed to see that these people have inexpressible joy in circumstances that it, it would be impossible without Jesus to have. In fact, the word joy appears 158 times in the Bible. Think about that. Then you've got words uh, like gladness, joy, joyful, rejoicing, and all of those words combined together, they appear almost 500 times. I'm telling you, joy is all throughout the Bible. Some of my favorite passages come from the Old Testament. Psalms 4, you have put gladness in my heart. What about Psalms 5? Let all those rejoice who put their trust in you. Let them ever shout for joy. Psalm 32, be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright. That's just, that's just a little bit. But all throughout God's word, you've got this constant theme of I have joy. I have joy. In the New Testament, Paul actually makes a command out of it. Do you realize that? Philippians 4 verse 4, Paul says this, rejoice in the Lord. It's a command. He's not saying this is a good thought or this is a good idea. He's, he's saying this is a command. Rejoice in the Lord. It's an imperative Rejoice in the Lord. Again, I say rejoice. What makes this verse so powerful is Paul gave that command from jail. He gave that command from a Roman prison. He wasn't on vacation when he wrote that. He was in jail. And he said rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. You know what that tells me? For him to be able to write that in those circumstances, for him to be able to give that command, it tells me something. And here it is, that joy has little to do with what's going on around you and a lot to do with what's going on inside of you. That's joy. Not, not about what's going on around you, but what's going on inside of you. That's joy. And the reason some of us aren't joyful, even though we're blaming our, we're blaming our circumstances, we're blaming people around us, it's because we don't have the right thing going on right here. Christians are supposed to be joyful. Christians are not supposed to live perfect lives and have perfect circumstances, but we are supposed to be joyful. That's one of the greatest testimonies of our faith that we have truly experienced love of Jesus Christ is that we have joy and it's inexpressible. I remember working in Thailand. I worked with the refugees from Pakistan, people who had to come from Pakistan because their lives were in danger. And I met a, a wonderful man. I won't say his name because we get live streamed. And I had the privilege of working with this guy. He fled from his country in Pakistan to Thailand because his life was in danger. His 
children's life was in danger and he fled. He was there for about three months before he didn't get the proper paperwork and all of a sudden he was illegal in the country of Thailand and he got taken in and he was held in horrible conditions. Where he was held, it was nasty and I always had to go visit him. And I was always blown away by the smile on this guy's face. Amazing, amazing joy. Unexpressible joy that he had. And nothing could ever take that away from him. And I remember being so stupid. Remember, I'm the missionary here. <laughs> I'm the missionary. And one day I said, man, I just don't understand why you're smiling today. And I'll never forget his response. Pastor Justin, you're supposed to know these things. And he grabbed the bars and he pulled his head up and he said, I have the joy. I have the joy. Nothing could take that away from him. He was in a nasty old cell living behind bars, and yet something was happening right here that was supernatural, miraculous. He had the joy of the Lord because he experienced God's salvation. Do you have that kind of joy in your life that no matter what you're going through, you could look to God and you can praise him? Billy Sunday, an evangelist from another generation, said this, if you have no joy, there must be a leak in your Christianity somewhere. Your eyes are on the circumstance if you have no joy. You're focusing on your circumstance if you have no joy. You know what else that, that this tells me when Paul wrote this? He writes it from a prison. Joy is not automatic. It doesn't just happen. It's a, a learned response. In fact, it'll only happen if you make the choice to be joyful. You have to make the decision today, I'm going to have joy. That's what Christian joy is. You choose to love Jesus. You choose to trust in him. It's that simple. You choose joy or you don't choose it. And you know what? Even though it's a command, it sure is an amazing privilege, isn't it? I mean, I am all about following the command to be joyful, to be one who rejoices. I refuse to allow the circumstances of this life to rob me of one of the greatest privileges, one of my greatest duties to rejoice. Some of you are thinking to yourselves, I can't do that. I just, I can't rejoice in difficult times. Yeah, you can. You can try it. It's amazing. When we have a correct understanding of who God is and who we are and we love him and we trust him, we have a joy that cannot be expressed. E. Stanley Jones, a great missionary, said, when I met Jesus Christ, I felt that I had swallowed sunshine. I like that. <laughs> have you swallowed sunshine? Fourth direction, we see this in verse 9 through 12. Fourth direction, receive from Christ. Read with me real quick. Starting in verse 9, it says, Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. In the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news. Aren't you glad they preached the good news? Who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things into which angels long to look. Peter, like any good writer, he has a theme. Peter keeps coming back to this theme. His theme is salvation. The greatest miracle of all. The greatest miracle of all is salvation. 
In fact, he already used the word three times. Peter wants his readers to have their focus on their salvation. It's the highlight of the book so far. Remember verse five said, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now he uses this word again in verse nine and verse 10. The word salvation appears 400 times in scripture. We see it in all kinds of different settings. You know, we'll see the word being used. We'll, we'll see saved, saving, salvation. It's used 400 different times. And it can mean anything from being saved physically from, from something dangerous or, or being saved from, from eternally from sin and death and hell. Peter turns his reader's attention to their eternal salvation. He's going to remind them, you've been saved from hell. You have been saved from sickness and death and sin. It no longer has an effect on you. You've been saved. I want you to remember your salvation right now. Remember when Paul wrote to Timothy, he said, Timothy, God desires all men to be saved. All men, that's God's great desire. That's, that's what God hopes for, that people would come to salvation. But here's the thing. Sometimes we in the church who have experienced this, and we talk a, a whole great deal about people out there experiencing this grace and mercy, but sometimes we in the church, we lose our gratitude for salvation. The simplest, most basic component of our Christian life, and, and what we do is we, we, we just don't realize how good we have it sometimes. We don't realize what we've been given by Jesus. See, when you said yes to Jesus Christ, well, let me, let me rephrase that. When God said yes to you, that's salvation. The prophets, these are the guys in the Old Testament who write and speak the word of God. He mentions them here. They write and speak the word of God. You know what this world needs? Listen to me. You know what the world needs? A word from God. So guess what? The world needs the Bible. The world needs the Bible. All of these YouTube prophets and apostles coming out, coming out of the woodwork. What I need is a word from God, and I've got it in my Bible. That's what the world needs right now. Christians who are committed and dedicated to the word of God. Paul's talking about prophets who prophesied about the grace of God. Do you know the entire Bible is about grace? Some people say, well, there's kind of two parts of the Bible. There's the Old Testament, which is all about the law, and the New Testament, which is all about Jesus. Guess what? The entire Bible is about grace. The entire Bible is about Jesus. Verse 10 says that the prophets who prophesied, these are the guys that made all kinds of crazy predictions. Um, they prophesied over all these issues and problems society was having, and they didn't even understand everything that they wrote when they wrote it. They just knew they were getting a word from God. In fact, I would say they probably understood very little of what they wrote. I like the way that a commentary says it. They shot all of these divine arrows out, but they had no idea where these arrows would land. In Isaiah chapter 6, God commissions Isaiah to go proclaim to a nation the desolations that will come. And Isaiah asks this question, how long, O Lord? How long? The, the prophet Habakkuk says the same thing when the predictions are made about Judah and Jerusalem. Remember what he asks? How long? How long, O Lord? How about Daniel? Even Daniel, he didn't get everything. Daniel 7 says, I was grieved in my spirit within my body because this vision troubled me. They didn't 
have all of the pieces. He had to look to the angel who was next to him and ask him, what in the world does all this mean? They were trying to understand two things. In our text today, it says they were inquiring. Inquiring what? Inquiring what person or time? Did you catch the two things they want to know? Who am I writing about? And when will these things happen? What's the timing and the circumstances around the coming of the Messiah? I said it earlier, the commentary said that these prophets shot up a bunch of divine arrows into the air. Listen to me, you and I have a whole bunch of predictions made in the Old Testament, but we have the New Testament too, so we get to see where these arrows are going to land. If we're just reading the New Testament, it's like going to a field with a bunch of arrows and you ask, where in the world did these come from? But when we read the Old Testament, we know where they came from. We have the whole picture. One scholar describes it this way. The new is in the old contained and the old is in the new contained. You need both to see who and when those arrows were shot and how they were filled in Jesus Christ. We have it before us. And then I love how it ends. It says, which angels long to look. That's a very interesting line. An angel is a divine being. An angel, in fact, angel means message. So when God would have a message uh, to deliver, he would do it through an angel. The Bible says that the law was medita- uh, mediated to Moses through angels. Angels delivered messages. But there are obviously times when God delivered messages through his children. And when the Holy Spirit would say, I got this one, I'm going to deliver this message. The Holy Spirit would fill a servant, speak through them or write through them. And the angels are sitting there and they're wondering what all this means. That is a, what a line that is at the end of verse 12. You think about the message of the Bible, it's amazing. The Holy Spirit who indwelt and empowered the perfect life of Jesus... And then Jesus sends out the Holy Spirit to empower the apostles to write the scriptures. And then Jesus sends the Holy Spirit to fill the people of God, to read the word of God, to receive a word from God. It's an amazing miracle. And when we read the Bible, something supernatural happens. You have heard me say it before. It is not just an ordinary book. It is not just something we read to our kids so they can hear these great stories and get a few good moral principles. This has life-changing ability. When we read through the Bible, something supernatural happens. The same God who wrote this opens our eyes and this genuine transformation takes place. In our world today that has so much bad news, this is good news. In our world that is searching for answers, the Bible is the answer. In a world that's filled with all kinds of lies, the Bible's filled with truth. Nothing but truth. This is what the world's searching for. This is why we're committed to verse-by-verse teaching. We want you to know, study, and learn the Word of God. At some point, those prophets, they definitely began to understand that, that they were writing, what they were writing about was going to be fulfilled in a distant time, far into the future. It wasn't going to happen in their time. Some things they predicted, much of it was, wasn't going to happen in their life. They wouldn't see it. And Peter's saying this to his audience. Are you ready? By the way, you're the audience. You're it. You're the recipients. Here's what he's saying. This is for you. All of these writers in the Old Testament and the New Testament wrote this for you. What Peter's saying in verse 12 is salvation was always the plan. It was not surprising to God. It didn't just happen. It was always a part of his eternal plan. And you're a part of that eternal plan. You're a part of that eternal plan. That's amazing. Salvation wasn't random, it was planned. 
by an almighty God who is sovereign over all things. It was always a part of his great plan. The prophets predicted it. But, and I'll end with this, Peter also mentions that the preachers did what? They proclaimed it. The preachers proclaimed it. The prophets predicted it, but then notice what Peter says, the preachers proclaimed it. Who were those preachers, by the way, that Peter's talking about? The apostles, right? In that day and age, it was Peter, it was Paul, it was John, it was James. The rest of them all went out proclaiming the gospel. All these 12 disciples who were scared to death when Jesus was going to the cross, who went and hid and and were hiding and they were cowards, but when they experienced the resurrection of Jesus Christ and they realized what they had in their salvation, they became brave and they went out and completely turned the world upside down for Jesus Christ, proclaiming his kingdom. One of the most powerful places I've ever been was when I was a missionary to India, and I saw the place where, where uh, Thomas, Doubting Thomas, supposedly was martyred. I thought about just standing in that place, looking at the Doubting Thomas who didn't even believe, and the guy who was willing to, to get speared, because he had a joy that was inexpressible, and he was proclaiming a powerful message that he knew to be true. New Testament's filled with these amazing stories of these guys going out fearlessly preaching Jesus. And now today, hear me out, the reason you and I are here, the reason we're here right now worshiping Jesus, hearing his word is because of the faithfulness of those who picked up that message and preached it. And people heard it as they preached it and they accepted it. And now every single one of us who call on the name of Jesus, we are all commissioned to take that baton and continue to preach the gospel to this generation and to the next generation. That is our responsibility. That is our duty. And that is our privilege. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not. I don't care what society tells me right now. I don't care what they classify me at. I am not ashamed of Jesus Christ and the gospel because it's the power to save. I won't stop preaching it. I won't stop proclaiming it. They can do whatever they want to me. I will stand here with a joy that's inexpressible and I will preach the salvation of Jesus Christ. Always. That's what they need. Keith Green says this, this generation of Christians is responsible for this generation of souls on earth. My question to you is, have you preached it? Do you proclaim it? Have you taken on this amazing duty given to the prophets and the apostles and now to you? Do you understand that you have a purpose? Do you live with intentionality in fulfilling that purpose? You are on a mission from God. That is what your life is. You've received the gospel. Now it's your turn. Now it's your responsibility. Now it's your privilege to transmit the gospel. And I I just am so sick and tired of hearing pastors and churches say we just don't want to offend people. We don't want we want to be really careful because we don't want to offend people. Oh please. Please listen, listen. And I'm saying it out of love because I heard Pastor Skip Heidzik use this illustration. It would be like you see your your neighbor's house on fire, and you're gonna sit there and say, uh. It's not my responsibility. I'll let the fire, the fire chief do it. He's in there dying. But you're just standing back. Yeah. No, look, we preach because they need it. They need to hear it. They need to hear that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. The only way. There's not multiple paths to heaven. There's one way, and that's Jesus Christ. And we have been called to go proclaim that. 
That's it. How can you say I'm afraid to offend somebody? Don't you think it's gonna offend them more when they're in hell? I mean, do you care for your neighbor? Do you love your neighbor? That's gonna push you and motivate you to tell them. Because if we're not proclaiming this message and maybe we really just don't believe it. Because believing and receiving is God's way of meeting our needs. Okay, if we love him, we trust him, we rejoice in him, then we can receive from him all that we need to to turn trials in this life into triumphs. You and I can experience today some of that future glory. I love what Charles Spurgeon says. He says, little faith will take your soul to heaven, but great faith will bring heaven to your soul. That's what we're called to do. That joy is mine. That's my inheritance and I'm gonna take it. And I ain't gonna let the enemy rob me of it. That's my joy. I can live every single day with joy inexpressible. Yep, I might go through difficulties. I've lost loved ones before. One day I might hear uh, that I've got a sickness or a disease. One day I might lose more loved ones. I go through hardships and trials. I've had people talk bad about me. I've had people not like me. I've gone through difficult times. But nobody and nothing can take the joy that's mine. It's right here. That joy is for you. Man, if you put your faith and trust in Jesus, nobody can touch that joy. Peter urges us, exercise love, faith, and rejoicing so that we can experience some of the glory of heaven in the midst of our trials right now. Amen? Would you pray with me? Father God, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for your Holy Spirit. I thank you for the joy that you give. Peter said it's inexpressible. We can't even describe it to people. The world doesn't even get it because they find their joy in all these things that don't last. Their joy is temporary. Depends upon their circumstances. But we, your children of God, we have a joy that we can't even explain or describe. And God, I thank you for that. I rejoice today for my salvation. God, I thank you that you inspired Peter to write these words that would encourage the church in Rome right before they were about to be persecuted. No doubt your words encouraged their hearts and their souls in that time. And your word today is to encourage us. God, if there is somebody here today that does not have that joy because they have never surrendered to Jesus, they have never made Jesus Lord of their life, it's really, really a simple, just like Pastor Enos said in communion, all you gotta say is, Jesus, I believe in you. And I need forgiveness of my sin. I can't do it on my own, but you can. That's all you got to do. You don't even have to repeat after me. You just need to say that and mean that. The Holy Spirit's going to come and dwell inside of your heart. And then you have to make the choice and the decision every day to experience that joy. Father, I pray for those in here today who may be overwhelmed by a trial in their life. They may be, may be struck with uh, grief. They may have experienced great loss. And God, they may have focused on the situation, but today I pray that they would just refocus their hearts and their heads towards you, towards their salvation, towards the wonderful things that you have done for them, and that they would experience right now a joy overflowing in their heart. I pray for that joy right now. God, that we can stand no matter what, rejoice the fact that Jesus Christ went to the cross, took care of business for us, and it's a done deal. We rejoice. And everybody says, Amen.